Her name is Anna, and one of her, uh, one of her closest friends in life is the question, what if? That's like one of her best friends. She spends so much time with what if. Um, she asks it all the time. Like, I mean, she has buyer's remorse. Who doesn't? She has returner's remorse. You know what I mean? Like, like she returns a thing, and then she's like, maybe I shouldn't return that. This is every day, y'all. Like, it's all the time. She lays awake most nights just running through scenario after scenario in her head. Most of them are tragic, okay? And I try to encourage her. Uh, one of the ways I try to encourage her is by past, like pasting, um, would you put that Mark Twain quote up here? I, I've shared this with a member of our staff too, a friend of mine here on staff. No, not that one. The, the other, there's a quote from Mark Twain. This one. We'll get to that one in a second. Um, yeah, leave that up for a second. So I, wait, I have this like pasted on my wife's mirror for her, right? It's a beautiful quote. 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things that you didn't do than by the ones that you did. So throw off the bow lines. Sail away from the safe harbor. Catch the trade winds in your sails. Mark Twain is a stud. Okay, this is great. This is really great. I pasted that on her mirror, and I was like, this is it, you know? Um, other times, more passive-aggressively, um, I, post, I, I post things on social media, like that picture you just saw, okay? So this, picture, this is my post on social media. I'm, I don't know if my wife saw it. I don't know if she liked it or not. Uh, I'll look after this. Uh, somebody else can check, too, if you want. Um, there's, there's a quote right below this. Well, I'll read the picture first. It says, um, the field of vision for, and I hate that it says normal, I wish it said something like healthy or whatever, but it says the field of vision for a normal person. And then the bottom it says the field of vision for an anxious person. It's pretty stunning. You guys are all like super quiet, like dang, uh, found out. Uh, you can leave that up just for a second, because here's what the quote says. It's from um, a, a, a guy named Seneca who was um, really cool a long time ago. Um, he says, um, some things torment us more than they ought, and some torment us before they ought. And some torment us when they ought not to torment us at all. We are in the habit of exaggerating or imagining or anticipating sorrow. It's pretty loaded, isn't it? That's a really good Instagram post. That's as passive-aggressive as it comes. Like, that's awesome, right? Uh, so I, oh, she liked it. It says A.B. Leonard right there. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so this is the kind of stuff I do to try to encourage her. But mostly, to no surprise of any of you, mostly quotes don't help at all. Um, okay, so one book that I read suggested that when Anna starts to worry about something— rather than shut it down, help her play it out. That's what they suggested, right? So, okay, so like, what if we don't lock our cars at night? Well, they, then we might get robbed. Okay, and what if we get robbed? Well, then I'll feel unsafe and we'll have to move. Okay, and what if that happens? Well, our kids will hate us. Okay, and what if that happens? Well, we'll grow old without having a relationship with our kids. And so I'm laying there in bed, and, I, and this is what I say. I say, so, okay, so you think if we don't lock our cars tonight, we might never have a relationship with our kids? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. You know? <laughs> okay, now seriously, this actually does help sometimes, like playing out this big sort of, because typically the if you're not an anxious person or you don't play what if, I don't play that game very often, I, I make a purchase and then I'm cool with it or I deal with it, you know, kind of thing. And so I just, that's not, that's not something I'm plagued by. Like when somebody else around me is, is having some of that sort of stuff, what I want to do is shut it down. Like, just stop asking what if. It's going to be great. Everything's going to be totally fine. Our car is not going to get robbed. You know, like all that kind of stuff. It honestly doesn't help in the moment, right? And so I have seen some fruit from saying, okay, what if it does? Um, in the hurricane, what if a tree falls on our house? Because that's happened before. Um, and, and so it's really hard to say that's never going to happen for that one. So it's a little bit easier for me to go, yeah, what if it does? So we have kids sleep in different rooms that like are seem to be out of the line of trees. Um, that's kind of the, the thing, right? But okay, but here's the thing. Here's the thing that's crazy. Like I, we usually um, play this game and then she gets calmer 
as we play it out because she realizes, you know, that is kind of ridiculous to assume if we don't lock our car, our kids are never going to have a relationship with us, usually. But the rub is this. Every now and again, every now and again, the what-ifs come true. Every now and again, the what-ifs come true. Every now and again, the car actually gets robbed. Every now and again, we're estranged from our family and from our friends. In those moments, of course, my wife says, see? Every now and again, the person who said, think of how ridiculous this person would have sounded just a month ago. We probably need some flood insurance in Houston. And every now and again, that person's right. We have a lot of fear in the world. And the reality is the world is not exactly safe. And tonight we're going to look at how Jesus relates to our unsafe world and how he makes space for our faith in him to be tested, all right? So the vignette we've been looking at tonight is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. I encourage you every week um, to bring some version of a Bible to check it out, see what's written there. Don't just take my word for it. Um, You can, but you don't have to. Uh, And maybe take some notes if there's anything, like Seneca said, worth writing down. Um, But we're looking at Luke, chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. Um, And... uh, Oh, I'm going over here. Um, and then this, this story, this vignette, is attested to in three of our four surviving gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all document this story for us. And then after a day of a lot of teaching, like all day long, Jesus and his disciples get into a boat to sail across the Sea of Galilee. And as they set sail, Jesus goes down inside this boat to take a nap. And soon after he falls asleep, this giant windstorm comes. And I, like any good person um, that's studying for a sermon like this, started looking at YouTube videos of the Sea of Galilee to see how tough these storms really are. It's kind of nuts, actually. Um, There's some very interesting videos and then very weird ones of people, like, recording themselves, like experts talking about the Sea of Galilee. Um, But the difference between the placid sea and the rough sea is stunning. It's really, really stunning. Um, It's 700 feet below sea level, and it's right next to mountains, and wind comes ripping down the cliffs at night. Um, In Arabic, there's actually a word for the storms that come about in the evening on the Sea of Galilee, and the word means shark. The storms are so rough that it's like being attacked. That's how rough these storms are in the sea, and something like that, we think, probably happened on this night when Jesus was asleep in the boat. And soon after, in this giant windstorm, Matthew, if you read Matthew's account of this story, he actually calls it a quake, like an earthquake. It's the language for a tremor. Begins to happen on the water, and they were swamped with waves. That's what Matthew says. Mark says, water broke over the sides of the boat, and our passage in Luke simply says that the boat began to fill with water, and the disciples were afraid. Now, they had seen Jesus cast out demons, and they'd seen him raise somebody from the dead already in their life with him. They knew that he was powerful, and perhaps that's why they went, hey, we should go see what he has to say about this. But he was also asleep, and really calm, and I wonder, you know, if you haven't figured this out yet, typically in the midst of a chaotic situation, people naturally gravitate towards the people who are most calm in the midst of those situations for wisdom and advice. Maybe there was some thought to that, I don't know. But probably they were just terrified, and they had no idea what to do. Um, And they were about to drown. So they run down below the deck. And they say, Master, Master, we're dying. Or in Mark's account, they actually ask Jesus, don't you even care that we're dying? And Matthew's account is probably my favorite in this particular, with this particular moment, because the disciples aren't even speaking in complete sentences. It's just three Greek words smashed together. One commentator says it's like staccato. It's like boom, boom, boom. They just say, save us, which is one word. Save us, Lord, dying. 
and, and, I, and it makes sense to me. Like in the midst of a panic, sometimes we just yell out things and we can't put together complete thoughts because we're afraid. They're panicking and they're waking up. Jesus, and I can, I can see them shouting those words to him. And in response to them waking him up, Jesus rebukes the storm and the winds. He actually gets up, looks out over the bow of the boat, looks at the wind and the waves, and he says, be still. And they stop. But he wasn't done rebuking. For the moment everything went still, he turned and looked at the disciples, and he rebuked them too for their lack of courage, for their fear, for how weak their faith was. If you thought they were afraid before because they were going to die in the wind and the waves, all of these authors make it abundantly clear that they were more afraid now because they just saw a dude speak to nature and it obeyed him. Imagine if tomorrow you and I are having a conversation outside and it starts to rain, I go, just a second, stop. And, it's, and, and then I go, okay, continue. Okay, honestly, like for as, I don't know if you've watched like Heroes or you watch something, you're like, that would be super cool. Like we're in a superhero age or something with movies. and everything. That would terrify me. Like if, if really, if you and I were talking and you did that, if it got a little windy and you're like, I'm kind of cold, hold on, let me just heat up like 10 degrees. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> like immediately it just happened and I'm back here. Like I, I have command over it. I have stewardship over this thing. It does what I want it to do. This is terrifying for them. In the ancient world, in the ancient Eastern world, the water was always associated. Big, big land, like water masses, like seas and big lakes and the oceans were always associated with chaos, with ancient gods of, of war and of chaos. And, this, and it was always, always this thing that we were afraid of. The Bible is, is really fascinating in its opening when, when, when you read in the opening account of Genesis that the God of the Hebrew peoples just separated waters that would have actually been heard and received as an offensive thing to ancient Near Eastern cultures around the Hebrew people. Because there is no God that just does what he wants with waters. The waters represent power and God. Nobody has control over that chaos. So th this may be even more than just somebody talking to nature and doing in their mind, Jesus actually in saying be still to waters associates himself with the creator of the whole entire universe. His disciples later would clearly tell us over and over again how all of the world, all of creation was made by, for, and through Jesus, of course. But in this moment, he demonstrates this insane power. And they're terrified. They're absolutely terrified in that moment. Who is this that he commands even the winds and the water that they obey him? This is the question ringing throughout history, friends. Who is this man who knows us so well? who heals the sick, who forgives sin, who casts out demons, who gives his own life for us and has the power to raise his own life up from the grave, who commands even the winds and the waves, who is this man? There are a million sermons that can come from this little cup full of narrative. It's one of the most cherished stories in the history of the church. This one's preached on a ton. I said tonight that what I want to talk about is what it means to live in an unsafe world because the winds and waves were raging on that day. And the last couple of weeks have given, I, I think if you've been paying any attention to the news or looked outside, the last couple of weeks have given us a good picture of the sheer terror and chaos that wind and waves can bring. We can put people on the moon. We can connect over video that is transmitted through space and we can get a large pepperoni pizza for $5.46. This is crazy stuff that we can do. 
We put things in boxes outside of our homes that are delivered to other people's boxes outside of their homes thousands of miles away for less than a dollar. Like, I, I really spend a lot of my day every day marveling at weird things. How is it that somebody actually is making a profit at Aldi's? I, I, I literally blows my mind. Like, every time I buy from them, I feel like I should say sorry because we're running them out of business. You know what I mean? Like, like we do, it's crazy. I think about this stuff all the time, right? But we can't, no matter what we can do, we can do things unimaginable 50 years ago, right? 50 years ago, if you said, what's the craziest thing you can imagine humans being able to do? Like, we can't make Marty McFly's hoverboard, but we can do things we never imagined. Super, super cool things. Nobody knows who Marty McFly is anymore, probably. Sorry. I'm, I'm almost 38. Sorry. Uh, uh, anyway, um, it's a really, Back to the Future is a very cool movie. There's a cuss word in the first one if you're Baptist. Um, you should know that. Um, that's not in my notes. I'm really sorry. Uh, okay, um, we can talk later uh, if you want to talk to me about that. Um, okay, anyway, check this out. So there's, all, I, I can't recover from that. Okay, um, we can do a lot of really cool things in this world, but we are powerless against the wind and the waves. A remarkably low number of people died in light of the hurricanes that, that, that have come. Thank God for people who decided to study. We make fun of meteorologists all the time. Like we, I mean, that's like a, I come from Seattle. I should say we, I'm talking about Seattle people. We make fun of them all the time. It's a punching bag. Nobody looks at the weather ever because they're always wrong. And we, and we, it's like a joke that it's the easiest job in the world because you literally can guess and get paid just to make up numbers five minutes before you show up to the office, right? I thank God for meteorologists today because these kinds of hurricanes have been happening throughout history, but people just didn't know, you know, 10 hours before the hurricane hit, you don't even know. You don't have time to get out when the freeways are packed. And so you're just left to deal with it. You can't run out to the hardware store to buy wood when all those people that work at the hardware store are going home to board up your window, so what are you going to do? I don't know how many thousands of lives probably were saved because of meteorologists. I'm super thankful for them, but, but we, we can know what's going to happen with the wind, and we can respond somewhat accordingly, but we can't control that. We can do all sorts of, we put people on the moon, but we're, we can't create weather. Not in that kind of way. When we, and when we hear about the hurricane coming and all these millions of people all these, was it six-something million had to evacuate Florida, I think? It was something like that, 6.5 or something million people had to evacuate Florida. No matter what their social economic status, no matter what their relationship status, no matter what their age was, no matter what their ethnicity was, all that they could do is try to hide from it. You may have your phone, but what good will that do you when the power is out or the cell phone towers are down? You may have a car, but what good is that when there's no gas? You may have money, but what good is that if you can't access it from the ATM? Do you guys get that? I mean, it's a little, if you haven't thought about that, sometimes it's going to be terrifying. Like the, the Times Free Press put out some recommendations for people in town yesterday before the, the wind came through, which um, thank God was not super terrible in our town. But like it was, it was recommendations like charge your phone, get some cash from the ATM. And if you haven't thought about that, isn't that interesting? Like what would happen if like the bank system went out? What would, do? What would happen if people just stopped driving trucks to deliver gas to town? How would I get around? Like how dependent we are upon all these big things, you know, all these things. It's kind of a crazy deal, right? Well, all of this kind of came to a head this last week or a couple days because of wind and water. Because of wind and water. So maybe you can understand why the disciples were afraid for their lives when wind and water pick up and nothing 
is going to save them, not their muscles, not their heritage, not their close friendships, not how smart they are. They're powerless in the face of this. And Jesus saved them that day. And so maybe, maybe, one of the sermons that can come out of this is you can say, see, when the wind and waves are raging in your life, call upon him and he'll save you. I don't think it's a bad sermon. Unless you mean that if you call upon Jesus, you'll be protected from storms. Because at least 100 people died in the U.S. from hurricanes in the past couple weeks. And are you going to tell me that they died because they didn't pray? Are you going to tell me that if they prayed that the hurricane wouldn't have happened? Or if they just prayed with more faith and it never would have landed in the United States? Or are you going to argue with me that the reason those 100 people died is because they didn't pray? Friends, over the past hundred years, I heard this this weekend at my church, over the past hundred years, at least 300,000 Christians per year have died for their faith. That's not in car accidents. That's not killed because of um, tragedies, uh, natural disasters, something like this. They were killed simply because of their belief in and profession of Jesus. 300,000 people a year. This is an unsafe world for anyone. Storms come, waters rise. God makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall upon everybody. And every so often, what ifs happen? Maybe, and I, f- I feel this like super strongly, maybe what you want is a really motivational talk on a Tuesday night uh, that pretends that this isn't true. Nah, like the world super is safe, you know? Uh, I don't know if that sentence makes sense. Uh, or, or you want to be told by, some, like by, by me or somebody else that there is some way that you could construct your life socially, economically, physically, something, that you could construct your life so that you will never get hurt and never die. Maybe what you want is one of these two things, for me to come up and lie to you and make you feel good for a night, or give you some method that's really not going to work that you can spin your wheels about for a while. But that would, those would both be lies. There is no way around the fact that this is an unsafe world for many of us. Accidents happen tragedies occur the malice of others actually affects our lives and if by some chance you are somehow relatively unscathed for 80 years from those things the incremental inevitability of time will eventually have victory over your mortality we're a culture i know that is funded by fantasies and escape. I know that. But Christianity is sober and nonsense. No nonsense. (laughs) Sober and nonsense. I got two great quotes tonight. Uh, Let me say that again, because I want you to hear this this clash of of cultures here, right? That, That our culture right now, we have so much of our gross national product is funded by fantasies and escape in one way, shape, or form. I'm not against either of those in healthy contexts, by the way. But, but our culture is funded by that. And, but Christianity is so much no-nonsense and sober. Imaginative, sure, but realistic. So I'm compelled to say it like it is. We live in an unsafe world. And the disciples experienced it that day, right? I don't even think that that's the hard part of the story, though, that they were sitting there and the waves were coming and they were about to die. I don't think it's the hard part of the story. The hard part of the story is that Jesus was asleep. That's the hard part of the story. Mark adds in his details in this account that Jesus was curled up on a pillow. He was curled up on a pillow in the bottom of the boat. If legend is correct, Mark's gospel comes from Peter, who would have been there that day on that boat. 
And I wonder if he just remembers how crazy it was with the boat filling with water while Jesus was comfortably asleep on a pillow underneath. I can imagine that. And if I were Peter, I don't think I'd ever forget it. Every pub, definitely drinking non-alcoholic beer. Um, Sorry again to a certain community. Uh, um, I can imagine Peter at every single place that he was, like retelling the story and saying something like, and there he was, asleep on a pillow while we were about to die. Like that's the kind of detail that Mark includes in this, that the real part of this, the real hard part of the story isn't the wind or the waves, it's that Jesus would let all this happen when he could stop it. Do you see that? And sometimes he doesn't stop it at all. Do you ever feel like that? When the world is caving in around you, does it seem sometimes like God's asleep or doing nothing? Where are you, God? If, you're ask, if you ask that question or if you've identified with that question, I want to say welcome to the community of the people of God. We're our leader, our example, our great hope cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is not a more lonely, harrowing, or heartbreaking sentence uttered in all of history. And this is the one I follow. Jesus tells us to actually pray like we're knocking on the door of a sleeping friend's house. This frustrates me, by the way. Like, I'm not telling you things that are like, yay! Like, these things I, I, I know And I'm thankful because I know them, but they frustrate me. Jesus says, you know how you should pray? Pray like a, you have to be a persistent widow before a judge that's not listening to you. Are you telling me that God doesn't want to listen to me and I have to like keep banging on his door? He's like, I'm not, okay, pray like you're going to like a friend's house at midnight, but they're like asleep and you got to like bang on the door. Okay, so God's like asleep when I need him the most at midnight? This is the kind of stuff that, okay, um, will you put up um, the Psalm from Psalm 44? Is that up here? Thank you so much. Um, This is from the songbook of the people of God. These are songs that the community of God would sing together, expressing their faith, right? This is what Christians would call scripture, okay? Awake, this is to God. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Could you, and I realize that the language is a bit archaic for you. You probably don't say rouse yourself or something like this. Okay, but if you could translate that into the vernacular of today, are these not sentiments that you would know? Are you going to forget me forever, God? I see everybody else getting stuff. One book of the Bible begins with the people of God looking out on the horizon of their land and going, how come they are getting blessed and we are cursed? This is the kind of stuff that falls off the lips of the people of God so often. Maybe you think that if you're a Christian, you will never experience trial. Or that somehow if you do, you haven't gotten it right. Like maybe you think that like if I could, the reason I'm experiencing trial is because I haven't done it right yet. Friends, of the many, many reasons why it's wise and helpful for you to be familiar with the Bible, one of them is that you'll be better prepared to face reality. In this world, you will have trials. That's, uh, that's a quote by Jesus, actually. In this world, you will have trials. That's not just me leveraging authority on stage. Even if you are in the very boat with Jesus himself, sometimes the what-ifs play out. Sometimes the storm comes and the ship sinks. And what's going to save you from that? 
social media celebrity status? As I list a couple of things, it might sound like a joke. I actually want you to do a bit of inventory. What are you putting your faith in? What are you trusting is going to make you okay? Your social media celebrity status. A particular job? Is that going to keep you safe? Money? Is it really going to keep you safe in the world? A little more respect. Some of us are gunning for a little more respect. As if if we just had it, we'd be fine. People finally getting you. Marriage. Are any of these things really going to keep you safe from the winds and the waves of the world? And here in this story, we come into contact with the one who can actually keep us safe. But instead of keeping us from trials, like the boat on the water that day, Jesus sends us out in the midst of these trials for the sake of others. He prays not, this is more lines from Jesus. I think he's a really good person to quote. He prays not that we would be kept from the world, huddled in safe little Christian communities and perfectly structured lives so that we don't experience suffering, but that we would be sent out into the world. I said for the sake of others, but I suspect it's for our sake too. For as dignified as it is to receive his love, how much more dignifying is it to get to share it and be like him? We live in an unsafe world, friends, and Jesus does not keep us safe from it. If you are a follower of Jesus, he sends you out into it, and he asks of you the same thing he asks of the disciples that day, to trust him, to have faith in him. Remember, Jesus rebukes them just like he rebukes the wind and the waves. Honestly, it's super intense and it's really surprising to me because I expect him, after he tells the wind, after he tells nature, shh, and it does, I expect him to turn and be like, you guys okay? So I just needed to, I was like preaching all day and I know I'm God, but I'm also man and so I was tired and because like, I'm like you guys now and, um, and so I just needed to catch him shut eye and I would have gotten it, but I understand your uncomfortableness with the fact that you don't know how I'm also sustaining the whole universe by the word of my power while I'm sleeping. So, um, I'm sorry. Like, I expect him to do something like that. That's what I expect him to do, okay? That's not what he says. Instead, he exposes them as cowards. He says, why are you afraid and why is your faith so little? And all of them are rhetorical in the Greek. It's super intense. Brothers and sisters, I want you to pay attention to what Jesus wants for his friends. He wants them to trust him. He wants them to trust that even if he's sleeping in the bottom of the boat, he hasn't forgotten about them. He wants them to have courage. To face their fears and choose to trust in something bigger than their fears. You know that's what courage is, right? I mean, you know that. That we don't call something courageous unless fear is involved. Maybe you think somehow that like, I don't know, this doesn't even make sense. Maybe you think you'll be courageous as soon as you're not afraid anymore. But that, that, just, that doesn't mean courageous anymore. <laughs> That's not what that means. That, that, that this opportunity for courage is actually created by the opportunity to have faith in something else, like to, to be afraid. Jesus wants his disciples to choose something over their fear. He doesn't take away the opportunity for fear. He gives us a reason to have courage, to take heart, to have faith when the winds come and the waters rise. 
This semester, we're looking each week at the kind of stuff that Jesus makes space for in our lives. This is like a, this was a, a pretty interesting idea. I think um, Kirsten suggested this, and it was, it's a wonderful theme, partly because it just strikes so closely at the heart of this ministry. I don't know how much we express this out loud. It came, Kirsten was talking about the Greek word for um, hospitality in the, uh, during prayer before the worship service tonight. By the way, if you ever want to come and pray with a bunch of people before the house, we pray at 7.15 in this room just for the night. You're all invited to that. Um, it would look weird or look different if all of you came. We can make a big circle, I guess. But, um, but you're invited. Um, but we talk about hospitality a ton. We really think it's one of the ways that we, um, uh, we, we come to know and express the love of Christ is in making space to meet another person, to meet a stranger. And so when Kirsten suggested this for um, this study through the Gospel of Luke, I was really excited to look at like, what are the things Jesus makes space for? That seems so much like the kind of questions we're always asking is like, what are we making space for in the lives of college students on this campus? And so we're going through that stuff all semester. What is Jesus making space for? And this story makes me realize how much Jesus makes space for our faith to be tested. I was not super excited um, about this somewhere in the middle of studying <laughs> uh, for our faith to be tested. Do you know that, that God will make space for that in your life? He will make space for your faith to be tested. Maybe, maybe the chaos that you're experiencing looks like anxiety. Maybe it's family drama or financial stress. Maybe it's a storm of criticism from every side. Maybe it's sickness or physical pain. Maybe it's a torrent of doubt. Or maybe your family and friends have just had their lives wrecked recently. My, whatever it is, all of us have stuff like this, y'all. It's an unsafe world. My suspicion is that we spend so much energy trying to actually avoid these things. Trying to plan for them and insulate ourselves from their power. And it's also my suspicion that Jesus may not have signed up for those plans. That he actually might be setting sail with us directly into the chaos. You know, the next time we, in the story, in the gospel accounts, we find Jesus and the disciples on water, he's walking on it like a boss. And you know what he says to them? Once again, fear is the context that he's speaking into. He says to them, do not be afraid, it is I. As if what they need to conquer their fear isn't a change in circumstances. It is to just recognize who Jesus is. That is probably, of everything that I was thinking of tonight, that is probably the line that I'm so most disappointed in because I don't know how to make you realize that really is what the answer is. So many of us, all of us in this room, are, are prone to think that the change in circumstances is really what we need. Whatever the context of our lives are, but what we need more than anything else to conquer our fears is just to know that Jesus is who he says he is. Do not be afraid, it is I. What that looks like, and this, let, me, let me speak sort of um, for you toward others first. I think it'd be easier to see this this play out that way and then we can talk about you. My, my hope tonight would be that if someone in your life is experiencing some kind of chaos, if winds and waves stuff is happening, right? If they're experiencing that and you know somebody, I want you to, if you can right now, I want you to actually think about somebody that you know that's experiencing chaos. I would be panicking right now because I couldn't think of anybody. Uh, my hope is that you would know that they probably don't need you and me to tell them it's gonna be all right. 
they probably don't need you to tell them what they could have done to avoid the chaos. Or to give them Mark Twain quotes. Or to post passive-aggressive Instagram pictures. Maybe what they need to see is Jesus in you. Maybe what they need is to hope in the one who has power over the wind and the waves and to hope in the one who will one day make all things new. To hope in the one who will one day raise us up from the grave to stand before him. We're told, friends, that if we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. And I think that's what you and I need as well. Not a change in circumstances, but faith that the one who can carry us, faith in the one who can carry us even through death. That our faith would be the same on still or choppy waters. That we would follow him in the peace and comfort of a college ministry service on a Tuesday night with all of the first world pomp we can muster, but that we would follow him equally on the brink of death. That I know is what God is actually working out through the chaos in our lives, a tested faith in the one who's actually worthy of it. But whatever your faith looks like, I, I, I just, let me say, I know that that's actually what God is doing. If you're experiencing chaos and trial and all these kinds of things in your life, God is, God is working out a testing of your faith that glorifies him and helps you flourish in the very midst of it. But that makes much in this story about your faith. There's something to be said there. But whatever your faith looks like, it's more important to attend here at the end on the object of our faith. And so I just want to read you this. Because whatever you feel about your faith, and however it's being tested, and however it's being revealed, or however it will be, this is a quote from Dale Bruner. He says, Jesus does not say, as he might have to those with little faith, Come back later when your faith is stronger, and I will help you. He doesn't say that. He takes us as we come. And if we come with hardly any faith at all, he won't pretend that he's flattered, but he does go immediately to work. What matters in the final analysis is that Jesus helps us however we come to him. So come. I want to pray for you for our night. And if you want like someone to pray with you in the back, um, every week there's leaders in the back who'd be willing to pray for you. Be honored to do it. Let's pray. Father, uh, where there is fear in this room, may we have courage. Where there's chaos in our lives, may we have faith in the one who only needs to speak a word for it to be still. May we see him in his word. May we see him in each other. May we see him at work in our lives and hear him say to us, do not be afraid, it's I. Hear us, Lord, come to our aid right now. Whatever the waters and winds look like in my friend's life in this room, I ask for you to be with them. If they see you sleeping, would you wake up? Would you come to their aid? Receive our worship now in the kind of grace that you always extend to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.